0: Podcast for high achieving gay men who have gone to therapy, want to feel better, and get exactly what they want in life. I'm your host, Harvard Law Trained Founder and Life Coach, Jonathan Hurst. Today we're talking about self-confidence. We're gonna use two operating definitions. First is self-confidence is the ability and willingness to feel any feeling. I know. <laughs> self-confidence is the ability and willingness to feel any feeling. Second, By contrast to confidence, which we'll define as belief in yourself based on evidence from your past, self-confidence is belief and trust in yourself without evidence. Self-confidence is belief and trust in yourself without evidence. So say you're confident in your ability to do a financial model, or you're confident in your ability to sing on stage or drive a car or what have you. If you built some body of evidence from experience you've had, and you have belief in your ability to do that thing, based on your evidence, you're confident in your ability, your judgment, your aptitude. Self-confidence, on the other hand, is belief in yourself without that evidence. So you might not have done that thing before yet, but you have the unwavering trust in yourself, you'll be able to figure it out handle it, get it done. You have the belief, the knowing that you will. So a lot of people I work with may have some incredible confidence in their work abilities, in their professional lives, but they might not have the same confidence when it comes to dating or their romantic life or entrepreneurship. Cause they tell themselves, well, I don't have evidence for that yet. So how can I have the belief? Well first, we're confused about the fact that confidence in your workability, or whatever you think comes easily to you now, was not easy or obvious or a foregone conclusion then. It also happens to be what was socially validated, approved, rewarded, and something you spent effort and time cultivating, even though now it's of course easy to discount. We'd like to forget right after how deliberate, intentional, methodical we were in building our professional and other accomplishments. You planned it out really intentionally. Imagine if you hadn't. There's a lot of confusion and misattribution here. It's not that intentionally planning for your life as an employee was easier. It's not that it's all that's available to you. It's what was rewarded, validated, and approved. While you might have been told and made to believe that being a founder, starting your own business, creating loving connection, a family of your own, a life partner, weren't for you, implicitly or explicitly. So here's the thing, though. When you learn to apply the lessons of your confidence in one area of your life to confidence in all areas of life without even that pre-existing evidence, that is the meta skill that enables you to step into the possibility of self-confidence. Self-confidence is a way of being, a way of showing up from a set of beliefs, from a set of thoughts, knowing you're worthy, knowing you have value, knowing you can do this and figure it out and you have your own back. You can handle it no matter what, even and especially when you haven't encountered that scenario, that thing, that problem, that relationship before. Now, I want to dive into some of the more advanced emotional work that once people have gotten into thought work, you've learned you are not your thoughts, that you can choose your thoughts and your thoughts create your feelings. Well, sometimes we have this tendency to jump to wanting to say, well, then fuck the negative emotions, fuck the negative feelings. Let's just feel positive, hunky-dory, happy, and grateful all the time. A couple of things first. Sometimes we want to choose to feel negative emotion. Say someone you love or someone close to you dies, or there's a natural disaster or a physical accident happens to you or anything you decide. Yes, it's true. Your thoughts about that thing, that's what creates your feeling about that. And often we do and want to choose to allow for those negative feelings. So for instance, there's over a hundred thousand people dying every day in the world. You're not feeling negative emotions about them. That's because you're not thinking about them every day, right? But if someone close to you in your life dies or is dying, you might want to choose to feel negative about that. Even if it, yes, it is indeed your thought, your awareness, what you choose to make that mean, that's making you feel sad or grief. So that's one. Sometimes it's important. We want to, we choose to allow for negative emotions. That's one. Two is the importance of the contrast of emotions. The contrast of emotions says that it's actually the presence of the fear, the anxiety, the shame, the doubt, the sadness, the quote unquote negative emotion. It is by contrast to that that we get to experience, acknowledge, become aware of the positivity, the flip side, the happiness, the joy, the satisfaction, the elation, We only really recognize that for what it is when we have the negative to compare it to. So we know that life is 50-50, 50% 50 positive emotion, 50% negative emotion for every human in every part of life. It's no better there than here, no matter how much money you choose to make, whether you're in a relationship or not, you have that job or not, you're in that city or not, life will always be 50-50. And we only get to experience that 50% positive emotions, the happiness, the joy, the celebration, the love, all of it only with and by the contrast, by comparison to the experience of and the awareness of the negative, right? So there's this tendency once we become aware of we are not our thoughts and we can change and choose our thoughts to change and run away and turn them into the positive. But first, there's an important difference between allowing an emotion, again, because sometimes we want to choose the negative emotion, versus resisting to and reacting to it. So let's take anger as an example, right? Or frustration or any other permutation of it. So there's an important difference between allowing and processing the feeling of anger and having anger at someone, right? So raising your voice or yelling or otherwise indicating your anger or frustration, maybe being passive aggressive or rolling your eyes or having a particular tone is very different from you experiencing in your body the physical vibrations of the emotion of anger. This is anger. This is a flushed feeling in my face. This is a beating in my heart, a tightness in my chest. This is a clenching in my fist. This is anger. Allowing for that emotion, naming it, labeling it, letting it process and pass through your body is very different from reacting to it, letting it take you over as if it happens to you, and taking out that anger at someone. Right. So lashing out or acting out or being passive aggressive or yelling is very different from allowing and processing the anger. It's also very different from resisting the anger. Resisting means. You feel and you recognize the anger might be boiling up to the surface, and you make it a problem. You're afraid of that happening so you try to push it away. I'm not going to get angry. I don't want this to happen. I don't want to blow up, right? Well, this is what happens. When you try to push that anger away, make it mean I've got to avoid that at all costs. It's like pushing that beach ball underwater and building that pressure so that at some point it just pops up. There's there's a limit to how much exertion and willpower you can try to resist the emotion away. Or think about it like a dam blocking a rush of water. All that force and pressure building up with you trying to resist the anger and push it away at all costs. A really important difference between allowing it, naming, naming it, labeling it, letting it pass through you versus reacting to it, having anger at someone, versus resisting it, trying to block it, push it away, not look at it, not understand it. And this conflation is really important when we're getting into, again, this advanced emotional work. When we push our emotions away, when we resist them, they persist. What we resist emotionally persists. So that's the anger. We're trying to avoid. We resist it, it persists, it gets even stronger and stronger until suddenly we burst and we feel like we're we've out we've lost control. Another important nuance of anger is that very often, anger is actually a cover emotion. Anger is often a cover emotion for a feeling of sadness and shame. What this means is because, in part of how we've been socialized and taught, which is a don't feel your feelings, their problems, and B, we feel feelings at other people because we assume other people cause our feelings. When we have all of this emotional childhood or lack of responsibility and accountability for our own emotional state, what we don't see is that oftentimes when we have an anger response, it's because we're avoiding a feeling of sadness or shame. We feel defensive because we're embarrassed by something we've done. Or we lash out because we're afraid of getting hurt. Now, there's an important difference between the way we think about and want to approach different types of, again, so-called negative emotions. I like to think about these in thinking fast and thinking slow categories. So in the thinking fast categories, say, the anxiety, the fear, the future-based worrying and thinking, This comes up for a lot of us. And if you take a step back and think about our evolutionary landscape, where our primitive brain evolved, it was first and foremost to protect us from that poisonous berry, from the mountain lion, from the real danger and physical threats of not being vigilant, of not looking, keeping us safe in the cave. So, this part of our brain that keeps us hyper aware of the threats isn't serving us in our modern environment where we're incredibly safe from physical attacks. We're extremely physically safe. And this hyper vigilance, the anxiety, the worry, the doubt, the fear, doesn't give you the results you want. It actually leads to procrastination, over avoidance, overeating, over drinking. Overfucking, overbuffering on social media. In fact, the biggest killers in the United States of heart disease are in part this downstream effect of the overreaction our body has to undealt with stress, anxiety, and their consequences in the forms of overeating, overdrinking, and not learning to process our emotions. So, This is the thinking fast bucket of anxiety and fear-based thinking. And to the extent we want to jump to intentional thinking, to choose thoughts that create an experience of calm or neutral, or get out of the anxiety loops, those can sometimes be areas where, yeah, once we recognize that, we might get bored pretty easily by seeing how our mind is offering us this incessant loop that's untethered to reality to worry, to have doubt, to fear. And sometimes it can be a really incredible instantaneous switch to create a sense of calm and peace and abundance for yourself. I want you also to be mindful, though, of the thinking slow bucket of negative emotions. So these are predominantly sadness and shame. So it can be tempting when we see the magical power of, holy crap, I can show up at work and life and relationships and not feel anxious all the time. It's like a fucking godsend, right? However, when it comes to sadness and shame, it can be helpful to slow down a bit more. Especially for gay men, our relationship with sadness and shame is something we haven't yet evolved or grown into, speaking broadly. We don't always want to rush into choosing a new thought choosing an intentional way of thinking to get out of sadness, to get out of shame, because so much of our lives and our childhood in our socialization is about making that a problem. So what can happen is if we rush out of sadness and shame, if we try to not feel that, again, whether it's by hopping to YouTube or Netflix or Grindr or the apps or anything in between, or converting that into anger, right? Because anger or frustration is often that cover emotion for undealt with sadness and shame. If you give yourself the chance to slow down, to be compassionate and curious and allow for sadness and shame, you begin to retrain your nervous system, retrain your body to recognize this is just a physical vibration, a physical sensation, just like anything else. So we've been taught to avoid them at all costs, right? And in fact, it's the opposite. So if we use the evolutionary landscape again as a framework to understand this, the primitive brain, in part, is offering you emotions as signals, as useful cues of information. So sadness and shame are often signals that may have evolved to signal to you, hey, don't be pushed out from the tribe, right? Don't be excluded from the group because in our evolutionary landscape, being alone, standing alone in your truth means you might die because you're dependent on the tribe for your resources, for your survival, for your protection. Your survival is at stake. Your body, right? Your body is telling you don't do this. Don't take that risk. Don't have that uncomfortable conversation. Don't put that, don't put yourself out there because your survival is at stake. So we really don't want to feel those feelings. But in fact, it's the opposite. Our primitive brain wants us to run away from those emotions, the sadness and the shame. And instead, we offer ourselves in our modern environment, slowing down. Sadness, shame, slowing down. Instead of scrolling, instead of jumping to anger as a cover emotion, instead of avoiding the topic of conversation. Thinking or not realizing, hey, our brain is just trying to keep us safe and aligned with the tribe. But in the modern environment, all the intuitions are flipped on their head. The environment's physically safe. The actual risks of you standing out are extremely low. In fact, all the returns, all the outsized benefits in today's world come from allowing for and leaning into the sadness and shame that are the hurdles along the way to making all the money you want, to building the kind of business you want, and to creating the kind of love you want in the connections and families and relationships. I know it will break your brain because it did mine. All the deepest joys and satisfactions in life are on the other side of allowing sadness and shame. So when you're processing naming labeling, not making it a problem, not buffering away sadness and shame, I literally celebrate when I find myself allowing myself to cry. I celebrate when I feel the heaviness of shame because I know on the other side of that is more connection, is more possibility, is more creation that we would otherwise choose to hold ourselves back from. So again, with the, quote, negative emotions of anxiety and fear, that's an area where we can choose to create calm and peace pretty simply, pretty easily. Because over time, when we recognize the anxious loops for what they are, even though they've been socially rewarded, we can realize, oh, damn, peace is an option. And with the thinking slow bucket of sadness and shame, Allowing yourself to be curious, to compassionate to yourself, to allow them can change your whole life. There is so much more connection, love, intimacy, money, success, impact, service on the other side of thinking slow for the sadness and change. Being a master, becoming a master of your emotions, in part, yes, means being able to discern these different types of emotions, the different flavors, the different ways they present in your body. When you get really in tune with what do these physical sensations feel like, you get to know yourself on such a deeper level so that you know, hey, am I indulging in confusion and doubt and fake indecision here? or? Am I indulging in anxious thought loops and worry? Am I indulging in thoughts like I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know what I want? Am I creating the experience of overwhelm or a panic, meaning I'm having a thought about the physical sensation of anxiety or fear? Am I trying to avoid and buffer and run away from a feeling like sadness or shame, a slowness or heaviness in my body? Being able to discern and understand, first off, like, what is it I'm experiencing? What's the tendency with which that kind of emotion, what kind of flavor does it present in my body? You learn the different tenors, the different colors, the different gradations. And, like, the reason this matters is not only so that you get to know yourself in a real way and you cultivate self confidence. But if we're just speaking about, like, the tangible things you can create, it'll blow your fucking mind. This is the fundamental superpower that comes with being human, that comes with building the life of your dreams, building the relationship, the love, the business of your dreams, getting exactly what it is you want in life, Now, on the road to getting exactly what it is you want in life, I want to talk to you about boundaries and manuals. So there's a lot here, but manuals are these often implicit, hidden set of rules, instructions, like an instruction manual we have for other people in our lives. Our bosses, our colleagues, our friends, our romantic partners, our family members, even our pets, manuals. Now, I want to bring up manuals which most often come up in the context of romantic relationships because this is where we have the strongest manuals that we tend to nurture um and not share so say you expect your boyfriend to come home at 7 pm every night or that he not travel for work or that he buy you flowers or that on your birthday he recognize you in this particular way with like a trip to belize say the thing about manuals the expectations the instruction list we have for how other people should act, how they should behave, is first off, we never communicate them to other people. So we assume they're either mind readers, or we make it mean something negative about us or them if they don't follow our hidden manuals. We get disappointed if they don't satisfy exactly that checklist of what we imagine we'd like. This is one of the really important distinctions and unintended, I think, harmful effects of the therapy culture. Therapy culture tells us we are people with needs. We are people with emotional needs. Of course, it likes to map on all these emotional needs to childhood wounds coming from our parents. It's a pretty predictable story there. And then other people's jobs, our partner's jobs, are to meet those needs. But look at how circuitous and how unproductive this ends up being. It says, I have emotional needs. You, my partner, your job is to meet them. And then boyfriend has emotional needs, and it's my job to meet them. So in this whole model of needs and emotional needs and other people meeting them, it goes like this. For me to feel happy, that's the pendant. I'm outsourcing that, giving my power to him. For him to feel power, for for, for him to feel happy, he outsources that power to me. Both of us are pretty shitty at making each other happy, at feeling the thing we want to feel. Instead of this whole complex rigmarole, this whole story of wounds and emotional childhood and mapping and all these theories of how it all comes back from your mother or your father. What if it was also really simple? Your thoughts create your feelings, and yes, we do have expectations and thoughts and desires for how other people should behave, how we want them to behave. You can have whatever manual you want. but. How's it going for you not communicating that to the other person or giving them responsibility or power for your emotional state if they do or don't do the thing you want them to do? Unless they say those magic words, you can't feel loved. Unless they match exactly the timing that you expect that you haven't communicated to them, they haven't met your needs. And this can really destroy relationships unnecessarily. Because here's the thing. If you really want flowers every week, you can choose to buy them for yourself. Or you can choose to tell your boyfriend that's what you want. And then he can also choose to say yes or no, to comply or not, to agree or not. And you get to choose then what you want to make that mean, if anything. You have that power. You have that control. It is not working out so well abiding by the approach that other people have the power or the responsibility to determine how we feel, and vice versa. So again, we have these manuals, these instructions, these rules for how your sibling should behave, how your parents should behave, how your friends, how your colleagues, how your romantic partner should behave. Because we think they create our feelings, then we get tripped up, and then we destroy relationships when they don't comply with rules we most often haven't even communicated. Okay, manuals are different from boundaries. Boundaries are not rules or ultimatums for other people, for your husband, for your brother. They're not things that other people can or can't do. Boundaries are things you'll do that you communicate if and when someone else does or doesn't do something that crosses a threshold you've set and communicated. So let's say. Your boyfriend is on his phone and scrolling while he's speaking to you. And let's say you don't like this. Now, one thing to note is if you're feeling sad about that, it has nothing to do with him scrolling on the phone. It has to do with what you're making it mean, right? There's a thought in between. You might have the thought, well, he's scrolling on his phone, and so obviously that's more important or he doesn't care about me. Right now, it's not possible for this action of scrolling on the phone to make you feel sad or hurt or frustrated. Because let's say he were scrolling on the phone looking for something of interest to you that you'd asked him to scroll for. Or he were thinking of you looking to buy you a gift or something out of love towards you. You wouldn't have made it mean, well, he's more interested in that than me. What's causing your feeling has to be your, interpre- your interpretation, what you're making it mean. Here's the thing, though. If you never communicate to him, hey, when you scroll on your phone, I think that that's more important to you than me. He might have no idea. So it's both not that your needs, your emotional needs, are his responsibility to meet. And it's not that you should keep this information to yourself. You can share that perspective. You can share that request and allow for the possibility he'll say no or yes, agree or disagree, or have whatever response he wants. You can communicate that, which you're feeling. And if it rises to a level you want, communicate a boundary, which is, hey, take another example. If you're uh, raising your voice, if you're yelling, I'm going to leave the room. It's not an ultimatum. It's not a rule for them, something you're dictating they must do or else. It's something you do for yourself for love from you. Again, the other person gets to show up exactly as they are. Humans gonna human. <laughs> and this is the thing because we have control over how we show up, not what they do. This is especially powerful for our work on our parents, on our family members. And again, with our romantic partners. So when you communicate a boundary, something you'll do if something your partner or other person does that crosses a threshold, you communicate that, and you do that out of love for yourself, for them, and for the relationship, then that is very different from showing up with a list of instructions, a list of rules, a manual how they should behave, what they should do, not communicating that and then blowing up or being passive aggressive or not replying or not showing up in a way that just leaves everyone confused and disconnected. So important difference here between boundaries, things we set for ourselves out of love that we communicate that we'll do versus manuals the often hidden instructions and rules we have for how other people should behave, which can get in the way of creating the connection and love that we want. So, one final reframe of all this advanced emotional work under the umbrella of cultivating self-confidence, the ability to feel any feeling you want knowing and having the trust and belief in yourself without the evidence is when you're not letting yourself be known, when you're not communicating exactly what it is you're thinking or what's true for you, you're lying. So people-pleasing and putting other people's emotions or needs or desires above your own is a form of lying. It's a form of deception. So it can be a helpful reframe to tell yourself instead of saying, oh, I'm just such an empath or I'm just uh, you know, so, so caring that I put her wants or his wants above mine, what you're doing is lying to your family, to your partner, to whomever else about what it is you want and who it is you are. So don't let yourself off the hook and tell yourself the story that this blowout or this relationship or this fight or this argument or this is happening to you that you don't have control over. It takes only one sane person in a partnership, in a relationship, to make things right. And that same person gets to be you. The only thing that you can offer in this scenario is love for yourself, for them, for the relationship, and the knowing that you have the accountability, the responsibility, and the ability to feel and process any emotion. When you really do this work, when you have the depth of understanding that, when you master your own emotions, you cultivate that self-confidence, you become invincible. Hey, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to check out The Gay Man's Life Coach at jonathanherzogcoach.com. It is the community of gay men transforming their lives to feel better and get exactly what they want. Join us at jonathanherzogcoach.com and book a one-on-one consult today. And if you have one minute, it would be so awesome if you could leave a review on this podcast so we can help spread the word and help more gay men. See you soon.